Signs are, I believe, an underappreciated part of daily life. They can be as simple as a sign telling us the use of a certain room or what the speed limit is. Signs can direct us where to go using either words or symbols. Sometimes they're not even written, but rather events that reveal a trend or a fundamental truth. In all of these, though, it requires recognition of the sign's existence and what it is telling us. Looking back with the advantage of hindsight, the student of history can't help but feel that Henry Clay's loss in the election of 1844 was a sign that he would never get to the presidency. But Clay did not see it that way. Sure, it was rough going at first, but as time went on, he bounced back as he had before and started thinking once again about that goal. Maybe, just maybe, 1848 would be his year. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. We are finally drawing to the close of our series of episodes on Henry Clay. We started the series with episode 33 and, like Clay, have persevered through both triumph and tragedy. We'll talk more about what's next for the podcast towards the end. But for now, let's rejoin Harry of the West in the winter of 1844-1845. Letters came pouring into Ashland with numerous folks across the nation, friends, political associates, family members, and even complete strangers, expressing their sympathy at his loss. Clay himself spent a good portion of his time that winter, quote, reading and studying interesting theological works while trying to cope with what he felt, quote, was the awful fact that the American people did not love him. Clay biographer Robert Remini asserts that to not be the case, but rather, quote, that the people did not completely trust him and therefore would not risk placing full executive powers into his hands. I know, dear listener, that you're likely saying, but Jerry, you just told me last episode that he nearly won in 1844. It was a close race, and he could have won if not for some Democratic shenanigans. That is true. However, it must be remembered that it's only with hindsight that we know of that voter fraud. From all indications, it was not well known at the time. Indeed, one can imagine Clay contesting the election and shouting the words corrupt bargain back at the Democrats with as much irony as he could muster, had he known. To contemporaries, Clay included, the election seemed to have been lost fair and square, and that Clay was to blame for that. As it was seen at the time by various Whigs, another Whig candidate might have been able to best the little-known James K. Polk. This sentiment, however, did not mean that folks didn't have sympathy for Clay. He was lavish with gifts over the coming months, including a most generous one from a group of prominent manufacturers and merchants. Clay had an outstanding debt of over $25,000 that Clay had taken over from one of his sons. As he was struggling to make the payments, he considered selling Ashland in order to completely pay it off. Without informing Clay, the group of businessmen got together, raised enough money to cover the debt, and paid it off for him. Thus, the next time Clay went to the bank to make a payment on the debt, you can imagine his surprise when he was informed that it had been paid off. The clerk told him that, quote, your friends have paid every dollar you owed, to which Clay reportedly burst into tears and exclaimed, did any man ever have such friends? Clay ultimately came out of the grief over his loss at the ballot box and started to look at the nation around him. Tyler and his administration finally got a Texas annexation treaty through Congress, and on March 1st, Tyler signed it three days shy of his leaving office. To him would go the glory of bringing the Lone Star State into the Union. 
Meanwhile, the new president, upon assuming office, seemed eager to expand the nation's boundaries even further west, no matter which foreign power claimed which land, even if it meant war. This bellicose talk did not motivate Clay to head back to Washington, D.C., though. Instead, Clay made plans to travel at the end of 1845 down the river to New Orleans and then on to Cuba. He left Lexington on December 18th, but the trip kept hitting snags. First, his boat down the river was stopped for days due to ice in the Ohio River and low water. When he did finally make it to New Orleans, he discovered that the ship to Havana was no longer running. Then he came down, quote, with a severe case of influenza. One has to wonder just how rested, if any, Clay felt by the time he returned to Ashland in mid-April. Clay's woes were compounded by those of his family. Not one, but two of his sons suffered a mental breakdown and was committed to an asylum at some point. Whereas Theodore will remain committed for the rest of his days, John was able to recover and resume his life. Meanwhile, Clay had to help his sons Thomas and James in building their own homes in the Lexington area, while his pride and joy, Henry Clay Jr., was building a life for himself in the Louisville area, even following in his father's footsteps and beginning to enter into politics. Overall, though, it seems that Clay was settling in well to life at Ashland. As he wrote to a friend on January 11, 1845, quote, I'm endeavoring to separate myself as much as I can from this world. The world, however, would not stop from intruding. Clay's rival, Andrew Jackson, would finally lose his battle against mortality a few months after Polk's inauguration, while Daniel Webster would deliver a eulogy for Jackson at the New York Historical Society. Clay, for once, was silent, and it seems made no public comment. The passing of Jackson would not end the influence of Jackson's legacy. His successor in the White House signed a resolution in the spring of the following year giving notice to Great Britain of the termination of the joint occupation of the Oregon Territory, a move that Clay feared would lead to war. Meanwhile, Polk had also ordered General Zachary Taylor to lead troops into an area between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande, whose ownership was disputed between the United States and Mexico. As Clay wrote at the time, quote, I have never been during the last years, and am not now, without fears, for the peace of the country. Though the issues with Britain would be resolved through diplomacy, the tensions with Mexico would not. Instead, U.S. and Mexican forces skirmished in the disputed territory, and Polk requested a declaration of war, which Congress quickly provided and Polk signed on May 13, 1846. The nation was going to war over territory that it had not officially possessed for two years. Clay was furious and wrote to Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, that, quote, This unhappy war never would have occurred if there had been a different issue of the presidential contest of 1844. What was worse was that Clay's son, Henry Clay Jr., was a lieutenant colonel in the 2nd Kentucky Volunteer Regiment, which volunteered its services in the war. His own son was going off to fight a war which he did not support. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of the Mexican-American War, as that is well beyond the scope of this series. However, there are a couple of key points that you need to know. First, the prosecution of the war became highly political. As General Zachary Taylor started racking up victory after victory, both Whigs and Democrats started discussing the fact that Taylor might be a candidate for the Whig nomination for president in 1848. Meanwhile, another former Whig prospect for president was growing jealous of the acclaim for Taylor. 
Major General Winfield Scott, seeing a chance for glory as well as another possible run for the Whig nomination fading, convinced President Polk and Secretary of War William L. Marcy to replace Taylor in command with Scott. Not only did this have the unintentional side effect of Taylor upping his correspondence with political leaders back in the U.S., including Senator John J. Crittenden, a longtime Clay supporter who now turned his attentions to promoting Taylor's candidacy. But the administration wasn't all that keen on Scott either, and instead went searching for a Democratic general that they could put into the field to gain the glory that Scott wanted for himself, and that they could then boost as a successor to Polk. Polk had, after all, taken a pledge to serve just one term, and despite lobbying by many Democrats to reconsider, he stuck to his guns as other potential contenders for the Democratic nomination, like Secretary of State James Buchanan and Senator Lewis Cass, kept their fingers crossed that Polk would stay out of the contest. As for Clay, the war had him considering his future again. The longer the conflict went on, the more vocal Clay got on the issue, writing to a friend in early November 1846 about the war and asserting, quote, What a waste of precious human life, and what a waste of treasure, too. It was begun without any necessity and in folly and is conducted without wisdom. He started to see the war and the potential questions that would be raised should it result in a further enlargement of the United States as issues on which he could build a platform for another presidential run. He considered a return to the Senate to give him an official forum and to be on hand to build momentum, but ultimately decided against it. Clay would deliver some public speeches, some of which would help his prestige, while others including one in which he joked about possibly joining the army and killing a Mexican, turned people off. However much he argued against the war from the standpoint of an observer from afar, nothing brought the horror of war home, like the news received in the spring of 1847, that his son, Henry Clay Jr., who had been serving under General Taylor, had been killed in the Battle of Buena Vista in late February. Taylor himself wrote to Clay, quote, expressing his deepest and most heartfelt sympathies for your irreparable loss. The loss knocked the wind out of Clay's sails. As he wrote shortly after, quote, there are some wounds so deep and so excruciatingly painful that he, God, only can heal them by whose inscrutable dispensations they have been inflicted. And the death of my beloved son is one of them. Clay, who had been disparaged over the years as a profligate, a Sabbath-breaker, and a profane swearer, turned to God after the death of his son. And on June 22, 1847, a couple of months after his 70th birthday, was baptized as an Episcopalian. His newfound religion, however, did not mean that he would deviate from his ambition for the White House, and his son's death gave it even greater meaning. As he wrote to Senator John M. Clayton of Delaware, quote, if I could derive any consolation from the fall of my beloved son on the bloody field of Buena Vista, it would be from the fact that, if he were to die, I know he preferred to meet death on the field of battle, in the service of his country. That consolation would be greater if I did not believe that this Mexican war was unnecessary and of an aggressive character. Clayton had asked for Clay's opinions on who should be the Whig candidate for president in 1848 and Clay had no qualms about outlining his conditions for agreeing to his name being put forward. Quote, First, the continued possession of my health and the enjoyment of my mind unimpaired, 
and secondly, a perfect persuasion that my services were demanded by an unquestionable majority of the country. Though he admitted the meeting of those conditions was unlikely, in particular the second part, he also confirmed that he would agree to be a candidate again. After that, he went through an extensive list of potential candidates, including his friend, quote, Mr. Webster, who without dwelling upon strong objections which exist against him, I consider there is no possibility of his election. Clay also asserted that, quote, I should regret the existence of any necessity to take up a mere military man for the nomination. What a fatal tendency would it not have upon the future destinies of the republic if both of the present great political parties should concur in establishing a precedent, giving a preference to mere military chieftains. Naturally, he did not include the late William Henry Harrison in that number, quote, for he, Harrison, was quite as much, if not more distinguished, in his civil than his military career. But Taylor and Scott were most definitely in that number of mere military chieftains. Clay would base this run on his opposition to the war and started off on July 24th on what Clay biographer Robert Remini describes as a, quote, quiet tour of the East Coast. He started off at a popular resort at White Sulphur Springs, Virginia, before going on to Baltimore, then Philadelphia, then out to Cape May, New Jersey, ostensibly for a sea bath but also where he, quote, gave an emotionally charged address to several delegations of citizens from Philadelphia, Trenton, New York City, and New Haven, in which he brought up the recent death of his son, as well as the deaths of his six daughters who had preceded him over the years, before getting to his gratitude at having been received so warmly, quote, as a private and humble citizen, without an army, without a navy, without even a constable staff. As described by Remini, quote, it was vintage clay. He still retained all the powers to move and persuade an audience. He was irresistible, and people loved him. At this point, he, more than anyone else, had become the most popular man in this broad nation. He left Cape May and went to Newcastle, Delaware, then returned to Baltimore and White Sulphur Springs before journeying back home. Awaiting Clay at Ashland was news that his friend Crittenden was actively promoting Taylor's candidacy rather than his own. Certainly, Crittenden wasn't the only one wondering whether this three-time loser should be given yet another chance to come up short in yet another election. Still, Clay pressed on. He delivered a major speech in Lexington, Kentucky on November 13, 1847, in which he discussed the war with Mexico and the consequences that it posed for the nation. It should be noted that one of the attendees at this speech was someone not well known at that point, but whose name might sound familiar. Abraham Lincoln, still in his first year as a U.S. representative, listened to Clay talk about the negative consequences should the U.S. conquer Mexico. While the speech was well received by Northern Whigs for its strong declaration of, quote, slavery is a great evil and an irredeemable wrong to its unfortunate victims, it was just as strongly detested by Southern pro-slavery Whigs, and the reaction to it reflected the danger for national political parties as the slavery issue pulled the nation into increasingly stark geographic factions. Clay would continue to work to gather support as 1847 gave way to 1848, traveling to Washington, Philadelphia, and New York, but at the same time, the buzz around Taylor was growing. As a Southern slaveholder professing to adhere to Jeffersonian values, Taylor was attractive to Southern Whigs that had been turned off by Clay. Further, unlike Clay, Taylor did not seem to be clamoring for the office. 
He wrote to an associate in September 1847 that, quote, I do not care a fig about the office. Those statements like this and his professed wish to be nominated, quote, by nonpartisan popular convention worried some of his Whig backers. It became increasingly apparent as 1848 went on that Taylor was the leading candidate, especially when the Kentucky Whigs met in late February and, though declining to formally endorse any candidate, chose a slate of delegates to the National Convention that were favorable to Taylor. At the convention in Philadelphia in June, Taylor took an early lead on the first ballot with 111 votes to Clay's 97 and continued to claim more delegates while Clay's numbers went down. Finally, Zachary Taylor received the Whig nomination on the fourth ballot with 171 votes, while Clay only received 32. Not only had the Kentucky delegation abandoned him, except for one lone Clay loyalist, but the Ohio delegation, which had assured him previously of its support, had gone for Taylor. Clay himself would blame both of those delegations along with, quote, the persevering adherence of the Massachusetts delegation to Mr. Webster for his failure to obtain the nomination. While the handful of delegates from Massachusetts may have helped him appear stronger on the first ballot, Taylor still would have been in the lead, and it's hard to imagine the tide going any other way. Taylor had the majority of Southern delegates locked down, and in the subsequent ballots, while the totals for the two military men, Taylor and Scott, went up, those for the candidates from a political background, such as Clay and Webster, went down. The Whigs just did not want Clay again. Clay took his defeat not just as a personal defeat, but as a defeat of Whig principles and of the party that he had helped craft. As he wrote to a friend in late June 1848, quote, I fear that the Whig party is dissolved and that no longer are there Whig principles to animate zeal and to stimulate exertion. I am compelled most painfully to believe that the Whig party has been succeeded by mere personal party, as much a Taylor party as was the Jackson party. Others, however, saw the results of the nomination contest as breathing new life into the party. After hearing of Clay's defeat, former Senator William S. Archer of Virginia proclaimed, quote, Thank God we have got rid of the old tyrant at last. Though he may not be their candidate for president, this would not be the last they heard from Mr. Clay. As the year drew to a close and debate was growing over whether the new territories of New Mexico and California that had been acquired at the conclusion of the Mexican-American War should allow slavery or not, associates in Kentucky increasingly talked about returning the man now being dubbed the Sage of Ashland to the U.S. Senate. Clay himself wrote in mid-December that, quote, If I could be persuaded that I could materially contribute to the proper adjustment of the momentous question which has grown out of the acquisition of New Mexico and California, I should cease to feel any repugnance to the resumption of a seat in the Senate. But I cannot reconcile it to myself to become a formal or avowed candidate for that office. It was not the seat for which he wanted to return to Washington, D.C., but as Zachary Taylor was set to occupy the one in the executive mansion, Clay would agree to serve when informed in mid-February 1849 that the Kentucky State Legislature had elected him to the U.S. Senate by a vote of 92 to 45 cast for former Vice President Richard M. Johnson. Knowing his past proclivity for opposing presidents of his own party, some Whigs worried that Clay would use his position in the Senate to take on Taylor. But some of Clay's friends set about assuring everyone that Clay would work with the new president. 
Indeed, it would be some time before Clay was fit to make trouble for anyone, as he took a fall while heading down a flight of stairs at Ashland. Though he didn't break any bones, he was confined to his room for a few weeks and suffered from bruises. His health continued to be a problem throughout the year, and though he traveled to spas and the ocean in attempts to cure his ailments, he remained with a persistent cough. This would not stop him from taking up his seat in the Senate when Congress went back into session in December, and he was received and visited by many well-wishers upon his return to Washington. The capital he returned to was a troubled one. The House was so divided that they could not decide upon a speaker, thus delaying public business. Meanwhile, the Taylor administration was facing criticism from Whigs in various parts of the nation, a topic that Clay spoke to the president about while attending a dinner at the White House on December 13th. Clay was soon writing to an associate of his finding that, quote, the feeling for disunion among some intemperate Southern politicians is stronger than I supposed it could be. The times were perilous for the Union as 1849 gave way to 1850 and it all related to the problems that Henry Clay had warned the nation about in 1844. The issues related to Western expansion were tearing the North and the South apart. Then, the president threw fuel in the fire. In his annual message to Congress, delivered on Christmas Day, 1849, Taylor outlined his proposal on the debate over what should be done about California and New Mexico. Though without going into too much of the ins and outs, the principal issue was that nearly all of what would become Arizona and New Mexico, as well as part of California, fell south of the Missouri Compromise Line. So Southerners argued that they should be slave territories. The problem was that slavery had already been abolished when those lands had belonged to Mexico. And other than a few new settlers who had brought enslaved people with them, there was little impetus on the ground to change that. Many Southern leaders were persistent, though, that slavery must be allowed to expand West. There were even proposals that New Mexico should be joined to the already existing slave state of Texas in order to facilitate the legal return of slavery to the area. Meanwhile, Northerners rallied around the proposal that had been put forward in 1846, called the Wilmot Proviso, which would have forbidden slavery in any land acquired from Mexico. Though it passed in the House, the Senate kept it from going into effect, but it represented the belief by a number of Northern leaders that the spread of slavery should be quelled. By 1849, due to the massive expansion in population in California due to the gold rush, a state convention was organized which drafted a state constitution, elected a state government, and sent a formal request to Congress to be admitted into the Union as a state. The problem was that in the drafted state constitution, the Californians had opted to prohibit slavery in their new state. Historian Albert Smith asserts that, quote, realistic Southerners knew that the admission of a free California was inevitable, but they had the votes to delay the process. Some Southerners wanted to use California as a bargaining chip to shift New Mexico into the slavery column, either by joining its Texas or on its own right. Taylor, in his annual message, proposed that statehood should be granted to both California and New Mexico sooner rather than later, and without preconditions being imposed upon them. Taylor sought to steer clear of the slavery debate and urged Congress to, quote, abstain from the introduction of those exciting topics which have hitherto produced painful apprehensions in the public mind. However, the problems facing the nation and its leaders could not be willed away by the president. Thus, Clay stepped into the vacuum 
left by a lack of decisive executive will. He wrote to his son James on January 2nd, 1850 that, quote, I've been thinking much of proposing some comprehensive scheme of settling amicably the whole question of slavery in all its bearings, but I have not yet positively determined to do so. As the month drew on, though, Clay formulated his plan, but knew that he would need assistance in pushing it through. Thus, he went on the evening of January 21st to the home of his fellow senator, Daniel Webster, to pitch his proposal and ask for Webster's support. Though Webster asserted that he would need time to consider the specifics, he expressed a general agreement with Clay's scheme and asserted that his, quote, objects were great and highly patriotic. With Webster on board, Clay rose in the Senate on January 29th and outlined his proposed compromise. It was a series of eight resolutions which would be passed separately, but which constituted all the components of his compromise. The proposed plan was as follows. California would be admitted to the Union without any precondition for or against slavery. Territorial governments would be established for the remainder of the land ceded to the U.S. by Mexico, again, without any precondition for or against slavery. The Texas boundary would be firmly established, and the U.S. would assume the state's debt prior to its annexation into the Union on the condition that Texas would cede any claim to New Mexico. To pacify the pro-slavery faction, slavery in the District of Columbia could not be abolished without the agreement of the district's residents and the state of Maryland, and without compensation being provided to slave owners in the district. While at the same time, a more stringent fugitive slave law should be enacted while Congress should deny that it had any power to interfere in the interstate slave trade. In a nod to abolitionists, the slave trade should be ended in the District of Columbia. These eight resolutions, taken together, Clay argued, would bring about, quote, an amicable arrangement of all questions and controversy between the free and slave states. Though it is outside of our scope to go through all the ins and outs of the debate, for the next two months, senators from one party, then the other, and from one geographic region, then the other, would rise and deliver their thoughts on Clay's proposals. Though seriously ill, John C. Calhoun would arrive in the Senate on March 4th, quote, wrapped in a black cloak and looking like a ghostly apparition. To listen as Senator James Mason of Virginia delivered a speech that Calhoun had crafted, rejecting the compromise, and instead demanding that the senators from the North, quote, reject the Wilmot Proviso, protect Southern rights to take slavery to all the territories, and restore the balance between sections. A few days later, on March 7th, Webster would take to the floor of the Senate with a speech of his own, in which he stressed the importance of reaching a compromise, quote, for the preservation of the Union. Calhoun would ultimately not live to see the resolution of the debate, as he died on March 31st. Following Calhoun's death, the debate turned to just how to deal with Clay's proposals. Should they be combined into one omnibus bill and passed all at once, or was it better to leave them as separate resolutions to be voted on one by one? Clay himself was conflicted on which path to follow, but with Southern moderate Whigs supporting the omnibus bill, Clay threw his support behind the omnibus bill with a speech in the Senate on April 8th. A month later, on May 8th, Clay presented a report from the Committee of 13 that had been appointed in April to consider the matter with the report proposing an omnibus bill. Day after day, 
Clay fought in the Senate to keep the bill as it was and fend off efforts to separate parts of the bill in separate resolutions or attach new amendments to it or thwart it with procedural moves. He would continue to argue that, quote, the bill is neither Southern nor Northern. It is equal. It is fair. It is a compromise. One person with whom Clay would not compromise, however, was with President Taylor. Since Taylor had sent the text of the drafted California Constitution to Congress on February 13th, with his recommendation that it be admitted to the Union immediately, Taylor's focus had been centered on that part of the issue, while Clay and others were seeking a resolution on all of the issues currently in the public discourse around slavery. On May 21st, Clay delivered a speech in the Senate attacking the president's focus solely on California by describing the current state of the debate as akin to, quote, five wounds, bleeding and threatening the well-being, if not the existence, of the body politic. Taylor's plan, he went on, quote, is only to heal one of the five and to leave the other four to bleed more profusely than ever by the sole admission of California, even if it should produce death itself. Though the relationship between the two had not been a particularly cordial one, with Taylor deliberately holding Clay at arm's length, after Clay's speech, it denigrated into an all-out feud, with an editorial shortly after appearing in the pro-Taylor newspaper The Republic, at the behest of the administration, attacking Clay, quote, for shattering the Whig support for Taylor's plan and of acting out of a desire for personal glory. The debate continued on into the summer with no sign coming of a resolution being near as Clay continued to push for the omnibus bill while Taylor threatened to veto it until the news rang out across Washington, D.C. in July that President Taylor had fallen ill. Within five days, he would be dead. And with the new president, Millard Fillmore, taking office, the way would be cleared for a compromise. However, the form of the compromise was back up for question, as the new president proposed that, should the omnibus bill fail, the compromise measures should then be voted on in separate resolutions to make it more amenable to legislators who supported certain parts of the compromise, but not others. The omnibus was ultimately defeated. But as Fillmore had proposed, the measures were immediately taken back up as separate resolutions passed and signed into law so that by September, the Compromise of 1850 was in place. Throughout this difficult year, Clay had earned the praise of numerous individuals, both friend and foe alike. The Frankfort, Kentucky Commonwealth wrote that, quote, in 500 years to come, it is not probable that an opportunity will occur to elevate his equal. Greece produced but one Demosthenes, Rome but one Cicero, and America, we fear, will never see another clay. Former President Martin Van Buren, despite their battles over the years, sent word through a friend to, quote, tell Clay for me that he added a crowning grace to his public life, more honorable and durable than his elections to the presidency could possibly have been. Certainly, Van Buren was in a position to know, as his name was already fading into obscurity. Even Clay, once all was said and done, wrote to his son James that, quote, Every measure which I proposed in February last has substantially passed, and the country seems to be disposed generally to give me quite as much credit as I deserve. With the advantage of hindsight, we now know that this compromise did not resolve as many problems as it had been touted as doing, with certain aspects of it 
including the new fugitive slave law, creating ever more issues for both freed and enslaved African Americans, and further agitating Northern abolitionists. Meanwhile, the issue of the expansion of slavery would be reopened just a few years later with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and within just over 10 years of the passage of the last bill of the Compromise of 1850, South Carolina would vote to secede. Henry Clay would not live to see all of this. Clay's health had been fading for quite some time, and as the compromise was being finalized, he wrote to his wife Lucretia that, quote, Never have I been so tired of a session of Congress or so anxious to get home. By late February 1851, he wrote home that, quote, The cough with which I left home sticks by me, and I am never free from colds. And what distresses me is that nature seems less and less competent to carry them off or to resist them then a few days later asserted that, quote, I cannot live a great while longer. He would continue to seek better climates to restore his ailing health, traveling to Cuba in March, but would also make out his will that year, in which he provided for the freeing of all the children born to his female slaves after January 1st, 1850, at the age of 28 for male slaves and 25 for female slaves. Clay had no way of knowing that their emancipation would come sooner than for which he had provided. On December 17th, due to his continued ill health, Clay announced his intentions to resign his seat in the Senate as of the first Monday of September of the following year. He would seek over the next few months to finalize his business in Washington, but his condition grew worse. By March, even, quote, climbing stairs greatly fatigued him. He suffered chills, for which he took quintine. He even reported spitting up blood while fighting off another cold. By late April, he sent word for his sons Thomas and James to join him in the nation's capital as he was too weak and debilitated to return to Ashland. They would watch over him the last few weeks of his life until finally, on June 29th at 11.17 a.m., Henry Clay died of tuberculosis at the age of 75. As I stated when we began the series on Clay's life back in episode 33, back when I laughably thought, I could actually talk about Clay's life in three episodes. Clay leaves us with a complex legacy. While a man of great talents and vision, he was also blinded as to the fundamental and most importantly ethical problems of the economic system of which he was an active participant. Though recognizing slavery as a problem, he could not see people of color as being potential partners in building a better system, but rather argued for their, quote, return to Africa a place that most of them had never seen and of which they had little to no knowledge. While he could see an expanded vision of America and its opportunities in terms of economy and technology, Clay had trouble grasping an inclusive vision of being American. He certainly was not alone in this, far from it, but it is a failure, which is a black mark on both his career along with those of many of his contemporaries. Likewise, for all of his vision, his ambition seemed to get in the way of his greatness. It blinded him to pitfalls that his well-developed instincts should have seen and caused him to stumble and fall to the point of becoming cliché. When Clay is remembered in the present day, it is often as the perennial also ran. His name is invoked every time a modern candidate seeks the presidency again after failing at their first attempt. After this extended look at his life, I would have to say that to focus on the trivia points of his life is to ignore what Clay truly contributed to American history. 
For better or worse, he was one of the principal architects of what we now think of as the system of political parties, organized groups with common ideologies and principles that endorse candidates and pool resources to push for its candidates to get elected. Clay was also an early proponent of a more proactive government seeking to benefit native industry and innovation at a time when most people envisioned a much smaller role for government in the lives of its citizens. He called for the recognition of fellow republics as a perpetuation of the American dream and the promotion of stronger relations with Latin America when most of his contemporaries were still focused on Britain and France. Clay rose to power and crafted a much larger vision of the United States than had previously been dreamed by most people of the time. He challenged the people of his time to think larger, and his vision is much closer to the present-day reality than was the world into which he was born, thanks in no small part to his efforts during his lifetime. With that, we are officially done with Henry Clay. As I put my copy of the Henry Clay biography back on the bookshelf for the first time in months, I think it a fine time to thank the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for all of his work on this series of episodes. I couldn't have made it through without his skills and expertise. If you, like me, can use Andrew's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, reach out to him via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this series as well as any suggestions you may have for future episodes. My current plan is to do a few one-shot episodes on various topics, which should get us into the new year. I have a good number of potential topics that I've had in mind to explore for a while. That should give me time to decide what I'd like the next longer series of episodes to be. A couple of folks come to mind to examine more at length as we did with Henry Clay, but I haven't decided just yet which one I'd like to tackle next. If you have any thoughts on this or any topics that you'd like for me to discuss, please feel free to drop me a line at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com or on Facebook or Twitter. My handle on both is harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Source information for this episode as well as all past episodes can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. If you go there and look on the right side of the screen, you'll see options to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and others. Thank you so very much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time.